So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership, and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. I hope you're well. I've noticed a surge of new listeners over the last few weeks. So welcome. It's great that you've chosen to spend time in our community. As a slight variation from the usual format, I thought I'd share part of an interview I did recently for the Big Balance Theory podcast with Sarah Cripps. The show explores how entrepreneurs have adapted through the challenges of the pandemic, and I thought our newer listeners might find it interesting to hear my backstory. So let's dive straight in as Sarah was asking me to recount the foundations of my first career as a cricketer. Before we go on to talk about Sporting Edge and the successful business that you've set up, can we go back and tell us about your first ever job? Ooh, first ever job. That's a very good question. Well, I think it probably would be as a cricketer, strangely. I started uh, professional cricket at 16, so that was my first job. I'd love to say it was a paper round or something more industrious, but yeah, I guess... Um, I had an early talent, played all through the back garden cricket with my older brother, got selected for the Staffordshire, the region I'm from, Staffordshire under 11s. So there must have been a flicker of natural talent in there. And then I got on that conveyor belt, went through to under 13s, captain the under 15s. And then at those kind of under 15 festivals, there are all kind of scouts and professional coaches looking to recruit the next wave of players and and. A couple of clubs offered me a contract starting. I, I did carry on my um, GCSEs equivalent now, O-levels and, and A-levels. So I carried on with school and university part-time, but I had already started earning money at 16, which was uh, which was great. So I just want to pick up on something there. You said captain. So I'm guessing not every young cricketer is a captain. It was strange, really, because I was quite a hyperactive kid. And, and I think my parents, when they were told that I was they needed to stay behind after a training session. They thought I'd broken something, but um, it was actually just to have this discussion about, you know, they'd seen something in me. And um, yeah, I think when I got to the England 15 team, I'd done actually really well, I scored a century in the trial match. But even so, my folks were, I think we'd got a, you know, a roof box on the car. We were heading off to Bournemouth on holiday um, after the trials, because it was, you know, very unlikely that I'd get picked. So um 
Then the coach read out the team. My name wasn't in it, but then my name was last because I was captain and it was a huge wow. shock to us all. And uh, we had to cancel the holiday and go on a cricket tournament with England, which was great. And then a few days later, I was in my young under-15 England blazer giving a speech to loads of dignitaries, which was Fantastic. a bit of a shock to the system. So that speech then, do you did that feel natural? Do you feel like oh, you were petrified. buzzing? Oh, you were petrified. I was absolutely <laughs> petrified, yeah. I actually won an award at Lord's. Uh, I was talking to my dad actually a little while ago about this, and we drove down, you know, three-hour drive to go and collect this trophy at this big sort of cricket dinner young cricketer of the year or whatever and uh, I'd got to do an acceptance speech and I'd got my dad had written out this speech on quite like note cards and I just remember it being about 15 pages long and I just tried to shorten it to thank you very much I'm honoured and sit down kind of thing and uh, I think I ended up with something in between but that journey down the M6 and M1 was uh, nerve-wracking you know but, mm -hmm. um, so had you not been selected for the team, what did you have any other career ideas that you wanted? No, I mean, career wasn't really a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, then I was 15 and like whacking balls around and running around with my mates. And and that's what life was like. You know, I was obviously at that time getting funneled into that talent pipeline, if you like, with the different county setups. But, you know, the chance to actually play professional cricket at 16 was was an incredible privilege. And and that led on then to playing in the first team and eventually playing for England, which was a, an incredible opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I know you played for, for England. I'm not a big cricketer, so I'm one of those that sometimes, being honest, says, why do people watch cricket? You know, where's the excitement in it? But, you know, it must be great that everyone's so quiet around watching watching the game. So how long did you play cricket for England for and what happened? Um, well, I played professionally for 19 years in total, and I think there were... When, when I retired, Sky Sports did a highlights DVD, uh, which I was incredibly proud of. I got my parents and my kids to sit down and watch this, you know, movie blockbuster. Uh, I think it was 42 seconds it lasted. So obviously not the most stellar career, but, you know, there were some great moments hitting the winning runs in a 2020 final, winning eight or nine trophies with various teams. So brilliant moments that I'll never forget. Man of the match on my England debut, but... Um, yeah, I played for about two years in the England side and it was an incredible experience. One of the first games was 120,000 people at Eden Gardens in Calcutta, this incredible stadium. And the noise was just incredible. I can't even describe it. It was like standing next to a, a cheap school disco and hearing the music sort of reverberating through your sternum. It was that loud. Um, you know, and playing against people like Sachin Tendulkar and having to you know, bowl your first ball at him and stuff like that. It was just incredible. But when we came out to bat, I we were actually doing quite well and, and I just panicked under pressure, to be honest, played the worst shot of my career and then had this moment where I was walking back to the pavilion thinking, that's not what we discussed. That's not what we said we were going to do. That wasn't the plan. So and who's course, we? Who's we? Well, the England team, you know, it was okay. playing against India, Harbhajan Singh for cricket listeners, you know, this amazing bowler. But I wasn't beaten by India. I wasn't beaten by this bowler. I was beaten by my own head. I'd got this voice in my head that was saying, you're not good enough to be there. And, uh, you know, and, and in those moments, if we can't deliver, you know, what we should do, then we fail. And, and that became a real pivotal moment for me. And, you know, I was late 20s uh, and I just thought, how come this must be the biggest difference between my best and worst day, but no one's really talking about it and no one's coaching it. So I, I did some digging and found that it was psychology. This this is back in 2001, so it's a while back. 
Um, and the American sport seems to be way ahead of what we were doing. So I did a master's degree from about 2003 to 2005 while I was still captain at Leicestershire. So you were still playing um, cricket? Still okay. playing, yeah. you know, and I'd done, I'd done reasonably well, but I, I always knew that this was an area that either I was fascinated by or B, I could make a career out of. You know, and I'd been in 20 pre-seasons by this time, and that's usually when you had a psychologist turn up and do some team building, you know, usually involved in planks of wood and, you know, coloured charts about your personality. And actually, that was fine, but that's not when you need a psychologist. You need a psychologist when the shit's hitting the fan, you know, in the middle of the season when everyone's absolutely exhausted and, you know, people have been dropped, the media are on your back and, and you having that self-doubt. So... I just knew that with my own experience of playing at the top level and feeling what my body felt like to be in that cauldron and having an, uh, an academic master's degree with some sort of theoretical hooks would give me an amazing opportunity to work with people. And, and it was bizarre. My first job was alongside Shane Warne in the Indian Premier League. Mm. I coached the South African cricket team. Um, I work with the league managers in the professional football so I sit on the board of the LMA that does all the leadership development so got to meet and interview people like Sir Alex Ferguson and Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola so incredible privilege and then also another role with that sports psychology was with England rugby with Eddie Jones so getting a chance to work with elite performers in different contexts as well as cricket um, has been incredible I've you know been very lucky working all around the world and then the ability to capture that and translate that into business lessons and strategies for success for executives and entrepreneurs has been a joy, to be honest, because I think for all of us, you know, we've all got these wonderful aspirations, but the thing that often stands in the way is what's in our own head and, and been very fortunate to create a toolkit from the leading minds of our time that can help everyone to thrive, really. So just going back then, so did you become a coach? In effect, I was sports psychology, especially in cricket, I was I was doing coaching as well because obviously I'd played at that level. So I coached the South African cricket team. Um, they had a great period, four years at number one, some of the world's best players, you know, that um, IPL team with Shane Warne we won, uh, coached Sri Lanka through to the World Cup. So, you know, amazing experiences coaching around the world and really using that lens of psychology to help people to reach their potential. So... How did you then become a coach to then setting up Sporting Edge? Well, uh, you know, I think as a professional sports person, you, you're often asked to attend dinners and functions and corporate sponsors events. And I was sitting next to C-suite leaders in some big, shiny organisations, you know, the FTSE businesses. And they were saying, oh, you know, really interested in how people, you know, perform under pressure, or really interested in what great coaches do, or how do you manage mavericks, or how do you lead people to change when they don't want to, or how do you, you know, communicate a new strategy or whatever. And, and basically it was what I'd, it's what I'd lived and been seeing for the last 20 years, if not more, through my new coaching lens. And I had amazing access. So what I did with Sporting Edge, my consultancy that I set up, was I basically just started to interview the people that I was working with. And, and I was speaking at conferences and networking with some amazing people. You know, so to instead of just telling those C-suite execs at dinner what these organisations were doing, that was going to be reliant on me being at the dinner table. And I thought my waistline might suffer. So, <laughs> I was going to say, did you um, become a bit of a junkie yeah. monk? <laughs> so, so I thought, you know, if I can actually film these interviews that I'm having 
or, or that I'm, the time that I'm having with these amazing people and they can share their wisdom, then actually we, we can create an amazing resource for, for other people to access on demand whenever they want to. So, you know, Eddie Jones, Gareth Southgate, Mo Farah, uh, Sir Dave Brailsford, you know, those kind of people, um, the All Blacks captain, Kieran Reid, Stuart Broad from England Cricket, Viv Richards, Shane Warne, you know, some incredible legends and some of whom are no longer with us. Obviously, we lost Shane, sadly, mm. but also I got to meet some people from different backgrounds. So although the business is Sporting Edge, it's gone much wider than that. And part of the South African cricket project was to explore resilience and high-performing teams. And we met a couple of the guys that were in prison with Nelson Mandela, you know, so to spend 26 years in prison fighting for a cause that you believe in and sticking together as a team, you know, was was incredible to hear their story. So I interviewed two of those guys. And again, they've both passed away, sadly now, but Dennis Goldberg and Ahmed Katrada, but the, you know, their story of resilience and optimism and collaboration is is truly inspirational. I get asked a lot to speak about high-performing teams. And yes, the All Blacks are great. Yes, Cirque du Soleil are brilliant and Formula One pit crews. But imagine being stuck on an island for 26 years and mm-hmm. to stay true to your values. So then you are, you innovated. You must have had the entrepreneurial spirit, as I think I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, the fact that you were a captain. And then you um, latched onto an idea and thought, right, I'm going to make something around that. What interests me as well, because we've had some of your programs for our young starters in the business, is that you back it up with the theory still, you develop a series of white papers, don't you? Yeah, again, I think, you know, it's one thing hearing stories and, and that's why we broadened out beyond sport. You know, for most corporates, they want a lot of diversity. So, you know, to look at the Royal Ballet or the, um, you know, Cirque du Soleil, um, Harvard academics, London Business School academics, futurists, technology experts, that's the kind of people we've interviewed. And that brings with it a certain breadth and perspective, but you've got to translate that as well into something quite grounded. So with every one of our video insights, um, we try and create a practical toolkit so that people can use it straight away in their environment. Great stuff. So because big balance theory is still, because there are so many people with so many stories about lockdown, because they seem to have transformed most people's businesses. What was business like for you kind of a couple of months up to the big March 2020 date? Well, we, we were growing really nicely, um, you know, a balance between two sides of the business at Sporting Edge. One is me speaking at various conferences or delivering senior leadership events. So that was particularly busy. And then, as you mentioned, the digital programs, the access to the digital library on, on membership and, and people can actually embed those insights into their businesses. So that's the other side of the business. So the dramatic shock, uh, you know, I remember thinking, well, let's clear the office and I'd sort of bit of bravado really you know let's clear the office this is something you know I'm a dynamic leader we can work from home let's go for it (laughs) and I sort of thought you know people saying oh what about this and I said I'll leave that here we'll be back in a couple of weeks and of course two years later we we were still out of the office and we haven't really returned well fully back to it everyone in our team is still working predominantly from home so I think it really sharpens your view. I think the biggest challenge with it was that you just didn't know when it was going to end, you know, and it kept creeping, didn't it? It was like, okay, we're going to have this lockdown. Now we're going to have a phase of level two. Now we're at level three. I can't remember what the terms were we used, Mm. but basically stay away from everyone for as long as possible. So we had to pivot pretty quickly as a business from me standing up 
doing face-to-face events because there weren't many conferences knocking about over those two years. Very few airlines traveling. Exactly. So so now it was about, can we deliver digitally? And we'd done some webinars before, but that ability to deliver inspiration, I guess, and and thought-provoking leadership events for corporates on scale as well. You know, if you think about some of our clients, the FTSE businesses, you know, might be a thousand people on one of the webinars and the ability for somebody trusted to deliver that. And also for me to be able to bring in the voice of a neuroscientist or a professor or a Mm -hmm. strategist or an elite sports coach to bring it to life was, was a different dimension. So it definitely allowed us to keep the business alive. So yeah, turning to webinar was one key innovation. And then the next one was really around making more of our digital platform. So that was more accessible, both for individuals and for leaders and leadership groups. I mean, you mentioned we'd got a couple of courses online that either the Winning Mindset, a 30-day program or a leadership program, which is a sort of a leadership accelerator over 12 weeks. They are things that you can join a specific timeline for, sort of join in and out. But what we wanted was an ongoing model where we could keep supporting people because all the hundreds of people that had been on those programs are saying, well, can we still have access to your content even though we've left the course? So we built our, what we call our members club now, which was an always on sort of on demand platform for all the insights. So there's about 120 global experts and a thousand of these two minute videos, each with a practical toolkit on, you know, innovation or resilience or handling pressure or teamwork, whatever it might be. And then we've also built into that subscription package, you know, events with key thought leaders. It might be a communication expert or a, a professor or an academic or a well-being expert to provide our members around the world with the chance to ask their questions. You know, a live event is always great to join. So bringing that community together through a Zoom Q&A session that I can host is great. So, you know, now we've got to a position where we've got hundreds of execs around the world using a two-minute video from a Premier League soccer manager or a neuroscientist to start their meeting where they're talking to their team about trust or conflict or whatever it might be. And and that posh clip art, if you like, is, <laughs> is a great resource. And that's what's incredibly fulfilling for me to go from having that idea of wanting to have a knowledge transfer in effect from the people who knew it and were doing it and were all these sort of shiny elite end leaders, but equally who had the same insecurities and fears and questions, but then to be able to capture that in video format and cascade it. So one of our clients called our platform a Netflix for leadership, which I thought was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's but, great. That's a great compliment. That, um, you know, that ability to dial up whatever you need in the moment, I think is is great to see. Was the subscription an idea pre-lockdown or was that something you just thought, you know, it's about you being adaptive? I think we had to adapt. To use the- yeah, I think we had to adapt. I mean, you know, as you know, the, the courses, as I say, might be on a set date, you know, so from January, there might be a particular cohort or another one might run from March to July or something, but what are you going to do outside of that? And also businesses wanted access to stuff, you know, they wanted resource that they could get to. The mental health crisis was starting to tighten. And yes, we can put on, I mean, I still deliver a lot of webinars on those kind of topics, and it's great to develop a curriculum of webinars for a client, energy management, focus, you know, handling setbacks, growth mindset, all that stuff's great as a toolkit. 
but sometimes it's nine o'clock at night on a Friday and somebody's got that thought and you're not going to put a corporate webinar on then. But if they can get on the phone and type something in and hear a few two-minute videos, that's incredibly liberating for them. So so I think that open access library was was definitely a, a sort of an innovation, really, of, of repackaging um, what we already had. But the use cases are brilliant to see now because it's it's opened it out for so many different people. It's a great compliment for you as well. I'm sure you've reflected on this as well, that there is a need for not just Jeremy Snape as the keynote speaker, but also Sporting Edge and the resources that you've, you know, you've developed with your team. That it was great feedback to say, we need this. We need this now more than ever. What can you do? So you might not have got that feedback necessarily, other than repeat business. Um, Pre-lockdown, the, um, the request was there. So... I can see why it is growing and growing and that I think the subscription is a great idea for the example that you've just given there that it's accessible, isn't it? So how was it for Jeremy though? How was it for you who's used to traveling all over the world and then you're at home with your family? How was that? I have a wonderful family, but <laughs> even that was a test, let's say that. I mean, I've got two teenage girls, um, so that's probably the hardest test, way harder than any cricket or business innovation you have to put in and and you know I think for all of us anyone listening you know if you've got kids especially teenagers it's an incredibly tough ask to lock them in with their boring middle-aged parents and and tell them they can't see the mates or do anything mischievous that's what your teenage years are all about so so that brought with it you know some challenges and and you know we would all sort of disappear off in the evening to go and watch our different screens with different content on and um it was an incredibly tough time without a doubt. But I think for me, because we live out in the country, the chance to run and exercise and stay out in the fresh air was a, a saviour. I think um, I've got a fairly active dog as well. And, and you know, having a chance to have the dog in the house was a different dynamic. Having somebody else or something else to care for, I think, was good. And also nature, you know, I love gardening and, and you know, being able to do that. I think the first lockdown actually we had, there was amazing weather. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we could, um, you know, make the garden look nice and spend a bit of time outside was great. I, I'm I'm an interesting one because I'm incredibly outgoing at times. You know, I'm very happy speaking in front of a thousand people and, you know, being on stage and doing that high energy stuff. But I'm also the the opposite of that. I'm a recluse. (laughs) And I think that's what recharges my batteries. But I think if anything, lockdown, because there was no variation and no rebalancing needed, because there was no big, you know, events, that that was really tough and testing. But... um, What did you learn about yourself then? And thank you, you've mentioned balance a couple of times, which I really like that because, you know, (laughs) it is about balance for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could, you've got two ways of looking at balance, haven't you? You've either got let's stay in the middle or let's swing violently from end to end. And I think my life had been, you know, traveling internationally, playing international sport, then coming home to a very quiet English rural cottage, uh, you know, and just heard, hearing the birds tweeting after 100,000 people screaming in the stadium. So I'd gone end to end probably. But I think you get you just get to know yourself a little bit. And, and especially in lockdown, you get to understand your family a little bit as well. So everyone needs different things. And, and I think there's probably much more acceptance of the human side of performance now. And, and that's certainly something that I try and share working with clients that, yes, I can show you what the latest theory on productivity is. And there's a two by two matrix and you need to be in the top right. 
but actually it's the insecurities and it's the you know the self deprecation and and the sort of pressure that we put on ourselves and the inability to find balance that is most intriguing i think and i think if you can care for people in a therapeutic i guess relationship as well as educating i think that's where you get the most impact and certainly we've created a an incredibly strong and and connected community by trying to be honest about what high performance is you know it's not all about the hustle and the striving it's got to be about perspective and and being realistic and i think we we live in a world where there's so much comparison and we almost outsource our confidence based on how many people like or you know click a heart on our posts and it's not about that it's about having that ability to be resilient and and a bit more self-reference that this is what i feel passionate about these are my values this is what i want to achieve and i'm going to do it with other people and i'm going to enjoy the process of doing it i know lots of people who when they scored runs they were the biggest legend in the room and they'd be buying everyone drinks and when they didn't score runs they wouldn't be seen for months and i think the world does that to us because it celebrates outcome and celebrity but i think if we can value the input and the striving and the collaborative community effect i think that's where the joy is really great two questions you said from the beginning that you got into coaching really because you wanted to focus on the inner voice that says you are not good enough so does that still filter through your coaching it's an interesting one i think there's a lot of talk at the moment about imposter syndrome and I, and i think we've got to be a bit careful because our brains built for safety you know our brains built to keep us safe so anything that's novel you know will you go for this new job you've lost this client you know will you do this speech it's always going to be a prod to make us nervous um it's just a data point really where that that sort of voice in your head says are you sure you want to be doing this are you good enough to do this and actually what we should do is say thanks very much you know gremlin um appreciate your concern but i actually do want to do this and i'm going to do it but your voice has just made me realize that i need to prepare really well and get a good network around me and make sure i know my facts before i go on stage and and that's great it's really helpful so i don't think we should try and get rid of the negative voice but i think what we do is we believe that to be the truth you know the fact that i've said you know i'm not good enough i believe that's true but what we should think about is our thinking so i should step back and say it's really interesting that I'm having I'm having thoughts that I'm not good enough. What is that trying to tell me? It's not a truth. It's just a thought in my head. And one of the neuroscientists I interviewed said used a really great analogy that we should almost imagine that we're standing at the side of the road watching cars go past. And each of the thoughts is a car that's driving past. Now we can we can just watch them all go past. Oh, there's a red one, there's a blue one, there's a pink one, there's a green one. That's all very interesting, isn't it? Or we can jump into the red car and end up sort of driving off a cliff. And, and that's the sort of negative thought and how we catastrophize. We tell it, take it as a truth. You know, my boss is asked to see me. This is, you know, this means I'm going to get sacked. Well, now I'm going to get sacked. I can't pay my mortgage. Right. My wife's going to leave me. It's the end of the world. And before we know it, we've created this doomsday scenario when actually we were just asked to come up because the boss can't open the window and they need somebody else to help you know so so yeah. we've got to be a bit careful mm -hmm. with it i think and i think that ability to think about our thinking is is a very valuable sort of breaker if you like so then you said about what you've learned personally from lockdown and it sounds to me like you are going to be focusing more on that now or you may already be doing so 
um, within your podcasts and within your training materials about the human side. It's interesting. Most people I have interviewed for the podcast have all said that people let us into their homes through Teams or Zoom. We've seen the human side of it and actually one size doesn't fit all. And it's about we do need to address that human side, don't we? Not the matrices or the the models. So. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's very easy to be objective, especially in a big business. You know, you've got these levels in the business. You've got these reward structures in the business. You've got your holiday policy. But what we saw through the pandemic was that everyone's individual. You know, somebody's parents are very ill. Somebody's kid's ill. Somebody's, you know, struggling with a particular thing. And all of a sudden you zoom down away from the spreadsheets and numbers into individual cases. And that's when you realize that the person that was flying for the last three months is now really struggling and we've got to go slow with them. So I think it's always been a human endeavor building a high performance system. It's just that when we speed up and it becomes a bit of a blur, we, we tend to look at the numbers and aggregate everything up to like a, you know, a factory setting, which it's not, you know, it's, it's all, and anyone will know that has either built strong relationships in their business or with their clients as they try and scale. You, you do it one conversation at a time, you know, you don't upload a spreadsheet and all of a sudden it, it clicks into gear. So it all sounds very exciting. And I know that you're um, back in demand as a keynote speaker all over the world because uh, trying to get to your availability has been tricky. Um, so that's great. And are you enjoying being back on the uh, the flights and the and the face-to-face and delivering it to, you know, getting that must be electric to get feedback from? Yeah, I, I love it. I love traveling as well. I mean, interesting last week, you know, a two-day trip to Bangkok was bizarre, really, you know, to think that, flying over there all that way to do a one-hour workshop with a senior leadership group. They're listening to my Stoke tones being translated into Thai, and I was listening to their um, Thai being translated back, so live two-way translation for that workshop, and just an amazing experience. And so, yeah, I mean, whether it's in in the UK or or abroad, and, and like you say, the podcast has opened up that, you know, the um, Inside the Mind of Champions is the name of that uh, show. And, you know, the listeners that we're getting from all around the world is just incredible, as I'm sure you are with yours. And, um, you know, again, the ability to produce content in a way that people can consume when it's important to them, I think, is a joy, really. And, you know, the emails we get and the, the comments we get and the reviews we get just reaffirm that that's working and that's what people want. Is there anything in particular from lockdown that you would want as a legacy for people who are striving for those high performance teams? Well, I think there's some interesting research around what actually creates a high performance system and a sustainable one. Um, I think, you know, when we get into short term, high demand for results, you know, we're at the end of a sales quarter or at the end of a financial year, you get this massive push, massive sprint where there's incredibly high challenge, but it's sort of every person for themselves. But, you know, the research suggests quite strongly that the best environments are high challenge, but also high support. So that ability to balance care, you know, individual support, listening, empathy, tailoring the package for the individual, you know, there's enough challenge out there. I don't think there's many people in business at the moment that are just twiddling their thumbs thinking, you know, this is easy, I'm cruising. No, definitely The not. vast majority yeah. are saying, this is so hard. Mm. This is harder than we've had. Mm-hmm. We've had headcount reductions. We've had budget reductions. We've lost some clients. We've, you know, reorganized our business. So the challenge is incredibly high. So I think what, what lockdown taught us, and, and again, it's a differentiator because some people didn't do this, is if you bring high support, in parallel with high challenge, 
that's the best environment. Mm, great stuff. I love it. Um, and if we were in lockdown, heaven forbid, and you were at home with your wappy dog, who sounds like he's calmed down a bit now, and your teenage daughters and your lovely wife, and you were only allowed one book and one podcast, what would they be? Could, could you narrow it down to one? Um, there's a great book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I think for anyone looking to change their behavior, become healthier, he talks about your choice architecture and basically that you can set these inspirational goals that you want to have this beach body, but your, your performance doesn't rise up to your dreams and your mood board. It, it actually drops down to the habits and the choices that you make. So really, we should be trying to improve the choices that we make on a daily basis. And it helps with structure for that. So, for example, don't leave that beautiful bottle of wine or the beers you know, right at the centre of your fridge where it's at, you know, eye height. With the imaginary drink me. <laughs> yeah, stick stick it, you know, somewhere else where you've got to go and put it in the freezer mm -hmm. for 20 minutes before you do it. And, and that friction stops you from doing it. Or one thing I often do is, is if I'm in a hotel, I'll put my alarm clock in my running shoes and put all my running kit out. So um, when my alarm goes off, I've got to quickly jump out of bed and there's no excuse now for not getting into my running gear, so... Before I ask about the podcast, because that's reminding me of something else. So when you, um, you said that when you were in lockdown, you know, you were grateful for the fact that you live in the countryside and you could um, run more. Did you find that during lockdown you did more exercise? You know, you were a sports person, an elite sports person. Did you exercise more than you had done pre-lockdown? I did, but I mean, I don't want you to think that I'm elite anymore. Uh, certainly not. But I think for me, it sort of changed gear a little bit, just the chance to be out of the house for an hour or two. Um, so I developed this thing called jolking, which was a bit of a jog <laughs> and a bit of a walk. Whether that tells you I'm not elite anymore, I don't know. But, you know, run for a bit, walk for a bit. You know, some lambs have been born over there, some birds singing up there, some tractors digging a field up over there, stop and have a look over the fence and then run for another 15 minutes and then walk a bit, listen to some podcasts, listen to some music, but actually fresh air, activity. So it was much more about well-being. I mean, I wasn't into timing my laps around the, you know, yeah. the block. That's mm -hmm. not it. It's not about that for me. It's about almost the longer I can spend away yeah. from home, the better in those <laughs> sort of situations. No, but I just wonder if, um, because you were constantly, you know, in the air, you're running a business, you're running a team, you're having to sign off new training material. Did you, have you learnt that actually the importance of exercise? Because I'm just wondering, the elite, by elite, I don't mean like a high achiever in terms of sport, but as in, you know, how important it is to keep fit. For the, for the mind. And oh, there's no doubt. I mean, and I think for me, I, I'm, you know, got a busy life and I get distracted and I've got lots of commitments like anyone. So for me, I have to do it first thing. I'm no good in the afternoons or evenings. So that's just what works for me. So. And do you, did you do that before or is it a habit that you carry, you did it lockdown and now you'll carry on with it or? Yeah. I mean, I, I've probably done more exercise in lockdown than, than for many years before. And, and I've just kept that going really. Uh, yeah. That's my question. Because really, I've yeah. never interviewed an England person before, you know, a, <laughs> someone who's played anything for their country, I don't think. So <laughs> I thought I'd use the opportunity to ask. And in terms of podcast, other than your own brilliant podcast, which we'll put in the show notes, but I know you've mentioned it already, Inside the Mind of Champions, what would be the one podcast that you'd want to listen to if you were only allowed one? Well, again, I think this science of high performance is is fascinating. And I think Andrew Huberman has got a brilliant podcast, which is, he's a neurobiologist, neuroscientist. And, you know, little things he talks about, like getting sunlight into your eyes first thing in the morning, which is hard you know, in, in the, the winter time, but 
just how that sets you up for this circadian rhythm and gives you energy. So I think the more we start to learn about the things we can do to hack performance, uh, well, they're not really hacks. They're just, you know, ancient wisdom that, that our ancestors would have done. But what we are doing is, you know, sleeping in in the morning and then putting bright lights on at night. And that's not what we were designed to do. So when we marry that neuroscience with um, common sense, it creates some good strategies for it. So I hope you enjoyed that voyage inside the mind of a chump. And as ever, please do get in touch via hello at sportingedge.com if you have any questions for the show. Thanks very much for listening and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.